<clears throat> Jay? Is he coming to this one? Uh, Jay, where are you? We need to start the podcast. We need an intro, come on. I just guess he's not coming. Do you have anything you want to talk about? Yeah, GP Seattle was a week ago now. Um, that's actually where Jay is at the time of the recording. He's on a, a fun family trip, but he did stop by the GP for a little bit and we got to hang out. I was also at GP Seattle. Carrie, you were uh, stuck in Ohio. I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't get to talk to Pete Venters. How was that? Uh, it's awesome. Pete Venters is great. Not only did he do art for a crapload of magic cards, but he was on the continuity team at Wizards for a really long time from the early days to at least Mirrodin. I don't know exactly when he left, but we chatted with him for about an hour, and uh, uh, the same way we get really excited and talky about magic stuff, he does too, uh, <laughs> so it was really fun. He's the one behind the Dominaria globe, which has been talked about a bunch. It's the source of the map that we have now for Dominaria. Um, so it was, it, it, it was fun just chatting with him, you know, about uh, you know where Baron Sanger's from and how dumb Squee is, <laughs> um, how awful Gerard is. Yeah, uh, it, it was fun. Uh, he, he shared some stories from uh, when he was working at Wizards and. He he's he just he's a great guy. So if if you're ever at a GP with Pete Venters, uh, definitely definitely chat with him. Uh, got to chat with a bunch of other Watsi people, current Watsi people. Also, they're all good people. You see them at a GP, definitely chat with them. It's like like everybody I meet from Wizards is always nice, is always friendly, and they always have product to draft or a cube to draft, right? Well, and like or or just like brawl decks now. Like I. I I was, we were sitting there, like looking for a game, and I just saw on Twitter that that trick was brawling with um with Blake and Doug Byer, and so we just like went over and brawled with some people, <laughs> um, which brawl, by the way, I know this is a fourth host podcast, but brawl's really fun, um, it's a cool format, so if you have a chance to play brawl at some point, definitely try it out. Yeah, definitely. Um, thankfully, there weren't too many previews over that weekend in particular but we have gotten some in the time since including We've gotten so many yeah a whole bunch of well a whole bunch of sagas and legendary sorceries so let's just dive into those um the first one we want to talk about previewed by none other than snack time cast was the antiquities war it is a saga describing the event that a lot of people know as the brothers war but the battle between Urza and Mishra um, over the Power Stones, and which ultimately ends with Urza's Ruinous Blast, yet another card featured in Dominaria. Anything to add? Well, l like all the sagas, they they have different uh, art styles for the piece. This one is kind of um, technical schematics. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of imagery here. Uh, that can be seen. I don't know what that promotional image of Urza and Mitra is from. Is it from the novel? It ended up on Avatar cards for Vanguard. Oh, the, yeah, that's that's right, yeah. Uh, the, the background on that shows kind of a, a bird-looking robot fighting a dragon-looking robot. Uh, they appear on here. Um, you can see you can see Urza's and Mitra's hands with the two halves of the, the Power Stone, the Might Stone, and the Weak Stone. You can see kind of um, one of the robot machines on there. Yeah. So it, it's it's like a 
old-timey sketchbook. Yeah, and I believe Mark Tiedon had sizable prints of these at GP Seattle. I saw posted on Twitter. Yeah, I'd love to get one of those eventually. The original is pen and ink. and that's fantastic (laughs) that that's like that doesn't happen in magic art this is this set in general is just like pushing the boundaries of what magic art is the sagas in particular it's it's been it's been really cool yeah we got the sixth legendary sorcery while the sagas have different art all the legendary sorceries are done by noah bradley and this is the only multicolor one primeval's glorious rebirth which once again has Noah's kind of abstract landscapes and and centered composition. This depicts the rebirth of the five primeval dragons during the Phyrexian invasion. Um, So that's that's Daragaz, who we see in this set as a creature also, um, but is one of the primevals who gets reborn every so often. He was tricked into bringing the other four primevals, Dromar, Croesus, Treva, and Rith back to life. Uh, he was he was tricked by Tevish Sot. When all five came back, Daragaz kind of lost his mind, and <laughs> the five of them just went on a rampage, destroying Frexian and Coalition forces alike, because, you know, they are they are intended, or they well, I guess they believe themselves to be the true rulers of Dominaria, which they were, like, 20,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. I do enjoy the cracked floor look with the light coming up from it. Very nice. It's abstractly representative of an event, which is what all the legendary sorceries are. It's cool if, if, when you get the the big high-res version of this art, you can very clearly see that it is those five dragons. Yeah. Um, exactly how they're depicted on their card. The next preview was the Eldest Reborn, which was actually my preview for Twitter. Um, I have a whole thread dedicated to little story excerpts regarding the flavor of the card. And it is Nicol Bolas being reborn from the Madaran Rift. Um, we also kind of discussed this on last week's preview podcast in a very short segment where I was saying that Liliana um, likely would have been used by Bolas if he was the Raven Man to rebirth himself into the world. But yeah, it's... An outstanding piece, and um, the artist has the original in inks for sale for, I'm guessing, a billion dollars at this point. Um, people are very, very excited about that art. It's really good. Um, and this is done because Bolas ruled over Madara, which was uh, kind of a Japanese-inspired kingdom. I didn't even notice the Talon Gates on the bottom of that piece until this moment we're recording. <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, th- th- this was done um, in kind of a, a traditional Japanese ink work. Well, I think the Talon Gates have only been seen on the Plane Chase card right? in the time since, so exciting to see it referenced anywhere else. It's not like the detail wouldn't be relevant, but nice to have him actually coming up from the portal. Well, and I, and I, 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 lo- I like that the watermark on this card is just the one bolus horn. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I, no, I was, I was too busy looking at the, the scary elder dragon at the top of this piece and yeah. not at the gates at the bottom. And then we have the mending of Dominaria, which is 10 years after the event. We have finally gotten really a card to represent anything regarding the mending. Um, we had Tefiri as a creature card in the set. We had Rada as a creature card in the set. 
people who had been drained of their sparks in order to close the rifts um, that were plaguing Dominaria and the multiverse in general. But we never saw a card of any character actually closing a rift. We never saw a card of like any character encountering a rift. For the most part, Time Spiral as the set is a little bit disjointed with the Time Spiral block as a card set um, or the Time Spiral block story. Yeah, in a future episode, um, probably at some point when Dominaria's story is over, I have a really good rant for how Time Spiral block the cards is probably the worst set for Vorthos's in all of magic <laughs> i'm pretty sure it the block is number one yeah but yeah it's a complicated situation um yes but this mending shows the multiple heroes of the event including um karn and tafiri notably and yeah just carved into a very very nice looking tree with the world at the bottom yeah um kelly diggs has had a little thread about this art it's uh this monument is in Femeref. Um, so it shows Frey Elise at the top, then Lord Windgrace, then Karn, then Teferi at the bottom, fixing their, they're standing on top of Dominaria. Um, yeah. And you can see that it's, it's kind of fractured and broken, but they fixed it and now it's this, this tree. Um, some people noted that Jessica is not on here, and Kelly was saying that that was a deliberate omission by the people of Femeref. Because Jessica's the one who sealed the Zalfirin rift before Teferi <laughs> could phase Zalfir back in. Yeah. So it's basically Jessica's fault. They are very not interested in giving her credit when she basically killed everyone in the entirety of Zalfir right yeah. next door. And this is the third sculpture we see on Sagas. Yeah. Because we, we, we have the Gerard statue, which is very much a kind of a, a Roman or Greek marble design. Uh, we saw, oh, I guess Channer's Torment was a relief, but I guess it's yeah. still that kind of 3D sculptural idea. But but this one being entirely out of wood is gets that totally different tone and feel. Yeah. And I, and I like that, like, people do sculpt things out of wood, but this is, like, sculpted into a living tree, which is... Exactly. Not an art form that you really <laughs> have in the real world. Um, so it th- this pushes really into the fantasy element of, of magic in a way that that art in our world cannot. So that's also, I think, really cool. Yeah, and this was the last saga to be yes. previewed. So we are all finished with those. Uh, oh, we well, we have one more to preview. We have one more to talk about, um, but it was previewed earlier. It is the right of Belzenlock, because apparently this Belzenlock guy is a big deal. Heard so. What I'm interested in is uh, what this story actually tells and when it's intended to happen. We know from the Axis Magic videos that Belzlock hasn't been around because he was trapped in some place during uh, what was the event? The the War of the Abyss. Yes. I forget the exact phrasing that Kelly used. This is something that's maybe vaguely referenced in one of the old Harper Prism novels um, in a short story collection. Uh, So it's really digging deep if that's actually what the intended reference is. So this is an event we know nothing about. We don't know why Bells and Lock got trapped during this time. Um, But 
Uh, we have some clues from Joyra that it happened over 20,000 years ago before the primevals were even sealed away. So basically the reason we've never heard anything about Belzenlock is he's been gone for almost the entirety of Dominaria's history that we know. And these are the Cabal clerics bringing him back. That's exactly what the card itself does. You make a bunch of cleric tokens and then you get a big Lord of the Pit demon creature uh, that gets to sacrifice those cleric tokens you just made. To, to me, this begs the question of, well... Did Belzenlock come out of his own and start the Cabal again? Or did the Cabal remnants come back and then bring Belzenlock out of wherever he was imprisoned? So we don't we don't know yet, which is fascinating to me. And I want to find out because that's important. That like I, I want to know how Belzenlock got out now as opposed to any other point in Dominaria's history. What's special about the present? This is also the only saga that deals with a story that technically happens recently. Yeah, relatively recently, past 60 years. The way Belzenlock tells it, he probably intends it to have happened like 30,000 years ago. <laughs> but we know the truth, because we don't live on Dominaria. Yeah. This is also uh, links to... Dirge of the Dread, which is a piece that got new art by Seb McKinnon. This is this is also by Seb McKinnon, but it has the same cabal clerics with skull heads uh, from that piece from Masters 25. So there's this really strong art link between the two, which is super cool. And I really like that of the 14 sagas, they all have 14 distinct art styles, one of which is just Seb McKinnon's creepy stuff. Yeah. Like that, that gets to be... A kind of a meta art style all its own which is phenomenal um if you haven't watched magic man sam's uh video on sam mckinnon definitely definitely go do it it's really cool um i'm bringing up the story that we were referencing in the final sacrifice we literally one page worth of story see green sleeves open up the void and it ends up swallowing both Erdrago. And one of Greensleeve's friends. Ethan pointed out a different moment. Yeah, Ethan pointed out a story moment from Angel of Vengeance, the beginning of Which it. I think is the one Kelly was referring to. But yeah, it's interesting that yeah. the Void thing was in the Greensleeve's novel. The too. Angel of Vengeance excerpt. Um, long ago, in the morning of the world, a benevolent order of wizards had aided she and her sisters in the first great war against the legions of the pit. Obviously yeah. referring to the demons. And Kelly did not comment on that, so we will have Probably to see. Probably right. Yeah, we will have to see what ends up being correct come time for um, okay. the art book. Um, yeah. But we did get a whole bunch of new legendary creature spells, old legendary spells in general. But um, most of them are creatures. Some of them are not because this set has a Legends Matters theme. Yeah, kicking it off with Moltani Yabamaya's avatar, staple character in Dominaria's history, has been around since the time of Urza, actually. <laughs> imprisoned Urza for a time. Should have been imprisoned for a longer time. Yeah, for he was imprisoned <laughs> by Multani for um, the destruction of Argoth and had to kind of stay out the pain that he had inflicted on others, which is quite a change for any kind of uh, magic hero or villain. But Multani is a returning character from, yeah, Invasion Black Era. 
and more recently Time Spiral Arrow, where he was last seen um, aiding out with the invasion and people like Venser, who he also imprisoned. Really got a streak for that going. But you pointed out something neat with the mechanical references um, combined with the story references. Uh, so so Multani's card gets um, plus, one, plus one for each land card on the battlefield or in the graveyard, which... Um, so, so I, I guess back up a little bit. Multani is a Maro sorcerer, which is a type of forest spirit. Every forest on Dominaria has its own, um, and he's the Maro sorcerer from Yavamaya on Terracier. Another one of the Maro sorcerers, Multani, um, his card in the invasion block, I think it was in the invasion block, um, mechanically was bigger based on lands on the battlefield. That's now become so Malimo. Did I say Malimo? Crap. Uh, <laughs> they have um, too many M names now. Too many M names. <laughs> um, so so Malimo Malimo's original card cared about lands on the battlefield. Now it's Multani's card who cares about lands on the battlefield. Back during the invasion era um, and the the Urza's block era, Multani was the one who gave. Urza the Weather Seeds to grow the Wood of the Weatherlight. Now, they've also swapped back because it's Molimo who gave Joyra the new Weather Seeds to grow the new Weatherlight. Um, so I think it's funny that they've they've swapped, they've done a mechanical switcheroo and a story switcheroo. And we haven't seen Multana yet in, in the Dominaria story currently. But getting a card makes me think he'll show up. I don't know. He's, he's also... Uh, Quick aside on him, he's also important because during the Frexian invasion, he transplanted a small section of Yavamaya directly into Urborg, which brought a bunch of tree folk and Kavu and whatnot to beat the crap out of Krovax. Yes. One of them's still around. Well, one of them gets created recently. Yes, yeah, so so technically that's become a new forest on Dominario, and we saw the Cardinal Drotha earlier in this uh, preview season and Muldroth is a new Maro sorcerer that's kind of sprouting out of this section of Yavamai and Urborg, although tainted with black and blue mana because it's Urborg. Um, so congrats, Multani, use the dad. <laughs> um, and then next up we have Rada, who is also coincidentally tied to Multani. The story behind Rada starts with Time Spiral Block. Um, when she is, as Venser is, kind of dragged into the party um, relatively unwillingly. And um, what happens there, quote-unquote, Jessica ends up using Rada as a kind of living conduit to close the rift. Um, Rada's spark wasn't consumed, but some of her life force was. And so she is relatively endangered by the experience and is kind of... um, dragged around the plane as a result, kind of tied to Jessica, and is end up ended ends up nearly killed through the event. Yeah, we talked we talked about Radha a bit when we were doing our recap on Dominaria's histories. Yes, and now she is A much buffer and B much stronger as a card, because she is getting um, a lot of mana off of people attacking and it doesn't empty. She's like now the the head warlord of Keld. Yeah. Uh, and her warhouse is huge, which so like there there is a stark size difference between her card from uh, Time Spiral block and this card. Part of it is Time Spiral took place during a time where 
the plane was dying and most of its inhabitants were weak and malnourished. Yeah. Um, part of it is that, you know, part of the reason she's a lot buffer is that A, she's now healthier and not, like, basically starving to death. B, the magic, um, the Kelden magic means that as your war host grows, you become stronger. Yes. So as the head Kelden with a huge war host, she's just going to be stronger because of that. Uh, her culture's magic anyway. C, she's had now 60 years to pump some iron and <laughs> get ready to kick some serious ass, which is she's doing in the arch. Her sword isn't even... She didn't even use her sword to kill someone. She just pu- she punched someone to death instead of using her giant sword because she's just that savage. Yeah. Uh, she's great. Um, next up, we have Tetsuko Umazawa, who is... A fo- uh, fugitive on the plane of Dominaria, apparently. So we we talked about Bolas's history on previous podcasts. Also, um, Toshiro Umazawa from Kamagawa was banished to Madara on Dominaria. Started a line of people. His uh, descendant Tetsuo was a champion of Bolas, who ended up being responsible for killing Bolas in the first place, which is why Bolas had to do the Eldest Reborn shtick before the mending. Uh, he w- when he comes back to life, he has a whole thing where he talks about how he's gonna he's gonna wipe uh, the Umazawa clan from Dominaria. But Bolas missed one. Yeah, allegedly. She like like I like it because Lashrak makes fun of Bolas for getting killed by one of his minions, uh, w- which is a reference to uh, Tetsuo, and like Bolas is super embarrassed about it. This is like. This is his lowest moment as a supervillain. Yeah. And, like, just the fact that Tetsuko has survived is just a giant middle finger to, <laughs> to, to, to Bolas. Yeah. Um, it's also cool because in her art, you can see she still has Toshiro's uh, Jite. Yes. She, like, that broken card still exists on Tamanaro, <laughs> which is cool. Um, which, which also, uh, like, it it seems really likely now that Dominaria does not have a masterpiece series. But uh, one of the stated goals of the masterpiece series was that they couldn't reprint anything with names with uh, kind of lore specific names on planes where they couldn't exist. Umazawa's Jide was one of the cards that we we used as an example of like, no, this is not going to be an invention on Kaladesh. Like, it can't be anywhere. It probably can't be a masterpiece at all, because we're never going back to Kamigawa. Lo and behold, if Dominaria had a masterpiece series, it could have been a masterpiece here, which I think is funny. Yeah, two notes on that. There were, first, when that was a discussion, I had dived back into the Kamigawa novels to ensure that the last place his Jite was seen was on Kamigawa before he was taken to Madara, and it just it doesn't say the ultimate fate of it, so it could have realistically ended up on either plane, but of course it's going to end up with his lineage. Second was that regardless of how powerful the Mana Crypt or Soul Ring would be in Limited, Umazawa's Jite would be a hundred times worse. Like, that it's card basically just unbeatable. Sucks. Yeah. But well, and also at that time we would not have known that there were even any Umazawas alive. We would have assumed Bolas killed them all. Yeah. But speaking of people who are still alive in alive in quotation marks, so there's Josu, <laughs> who technically has two cards here. There's a legendary enchantment, Lich's Mastery, which depicts the moment where Bells and Locke turned 
his already zombified form into a Lich Lord. Um, and then he actually has his own card, Josu Vesh, Josu Vess, Lich Knight, which is ridiculous. Yeah. He's a, he's a four, five menace for four. And then you can kick him for six mana to make eight, two, two zombie knights with menace, yeah. which is 20 power of menace creatures across nine bodies for 10 mana. Yeah. To talk about cards that are going to be really yucky to fight against in limited. Like, you're probably never going to kick him in limited, but the fact that he's a 4-5 Menace for 4 means if you play him on curve, you're going to win probably a very high percentage of your games. Yeah, and also combined with extreme, extreme mana generation with uh, Cabal Stronghold, which was also yeah. previewed, the Cabal Coffers light version. Yeah, it's not... It's not impossible, but it would be unreasonable for you to stall that late in the game. Yeah, you know what? Let's just let's bump. We had it down on the list, but since you mentioned it, let's talk about Cabal Stronghold a little bit. Cabal Stronghold is, like I said, Cabal Coffer is light. Um, it has mentioned in this week's story as it um, apparently Bells and Lock restructures the entrances to his stronghold on a whim to make sure that nobody can actually probably invade and or try to take over the land. Yeah, it's interesting because we also saw what we believe to be Urborg, which is Tomb of Yawgmoth with Gathering Forces, the comic that was right before Scars of Mirrodin Black. And when Elspeth and Koth visit it, they go inside of it for a hot second and leave, but Apparently this Cabal stronghold and all of Bells and Locks efforts have been in progress for quite a while. So, of course, the reality of it is that things weren't written at the time. There was no plan for Bells and Lock at the time. They just wanted to show a cameo of Yogmoth's tomb, um, the Tomb of Flesh as they call it in the comic, and have a little bit of fun experimenting with that. But, yeah, he's got his nice base fortified there, and... Soon, our trusty band of heroes will be invading, hopefully with a, what is it, Blackblade Reforged prepared to slay, but they have to recover it. Um, I, I do want to mention the, the stronghold part isn't just a word. This is literally Volrath's stronghold from Wrath that was yeah. transplanted into Urborg, which Belzenlock has taken over. So, um, And, and the, the piece of art itself kind of has a, a basic compositional movement similar to Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth. So it, it really has tapped into the multiple facets of this location through Magic's history. It didn't tap into Lord Windgrace inflating his size and trying to eat the whole mountain. But yeah, <laughs> that's... <laughs> Uh, fun story <laughs> moment. And the other, I just, I just want to mention in Gathering Forces again. That story begins with Elspeth and Koth in a pit fight. Oh yeah, which is what the Cabal did on Otaria during Odyssey and Onslaught blocks. So, I'm, I'm wondering if, if obviously it wasn't planned because that story happened was written long before this block was even a twinkle in somebody's eye. But it's fun to but, fit it in there. But it's fun to retroactively realize that they could have very well been in a pit fight being run by this new version of Bells and Locks Cabal. Yeah. Um, which is cool how that worked out. But yeah, Blackblade Reforged. Um, Blackblade Reforged is an artifact, and it was initially forged by the Planeswalker deck in Blackblade. I believe we've reviewed this 
once or twice before on the podcast, but we'll just run through it. Yeah. He um, drained a lot of souls to make the Blaine as uh, from his for his patron, the Planeswalker Gaedron Dehada, and when she ended up claiming it, she stole his shadow slash his soul alongside with it. And Dakin worked a long time chasing her down, trying to recover himself, or his shadow, most notably. There's, it's assumed to be his soul. That's yep. how the story works. But um, what ends up happening is that it was never the Black Blade that she was after all this time. It was actually her um, trying to forge the perfect loyal servant through Dakin. And so she manipulates events involving the first Cartholion, Karth <laughs> that's his name Karth the lion how did how did they get from how did they get from that to Cartholion? who 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 did that that doesn't make any sense those are always the clichés <laughs> that i hate in movies where it's like you have to have the naming moment but yeah. in this case it was kind of cute cuz it's instigated by um Dakin. which which is funny cuz he's He's a terrible person. He is like a horrible murderer. And Karth is just like this poor little teenager. <laughs> but they, they have this like kind of almost father-son moment yeah. at the end of the comic. <laughs> and it's like supposed to be like bittersweetly happy. And I'm like, no, Dakin's awful. But Dakin Blackblade has notably his memoirs, um, which are referenced on his original card. And apparently has lost possession of the Blackblade. We don't know his actual fate. Yes, now the Black Blade is in the possession of the Cabal and Belzalnok himself. And so the plan is to recover that artifact soon. Yeah, it got mentioned in uh, last week's story, so we'll talk about it later. But uh, it's an evil sword. <laughs> like, like this This is a sword that was forged in the blood of Dakin's son and then his slaves. It drinks souls to give its wielder more power. Um, if you've played the Soul Calibur games, it's uh, Soul Edge is pretty similar in that regard. Yeah, th- th- this is the evil sword. This is not a good sword. This is <laughs> this is a bad guy weapon. Yeah. And uh, just just keep that in mind when we talk about the story later. Yeah. Um, and now we're going to dive into some of our flavor gems um, real fast. Gaia's blessing. Did you want to comment on that? It's it seems like it's abstract art. It's got the sword with vines around it. But it's a reference to the original art where this kind of uh, this female figure is kind of embracing a knight who's sticking his sword in the ground. It's the same sword, so that's a cool throwback. Navigator's Compass is one I wanted to mention. Flavor text reveals in a very, very blatant fashion that the Weatherlight can no longer plane shift. I talked to Kelly about this. It was very specifically written to make sure it was very explicitly stated that the Weatherlight cannot plane shift. It is yeah. not going off Dominaria this time. When they want that stuff to be ambiguous, they don't tell you the ending of the story, like um, Tezzeret implanting the core into his body. When they do want you to know it, they want you to know it. So, yes, the Weatherlight is no longer able to plane shift. Um, Whisper Blood Liturgist. Art on that one ties to Cabal Ritual, which was originally reprinted in From the Vault lore with very, very new art. Yeah, exactly. Um, And ominous flavor text that would end up returning with some relevance in Dominaria. There's this card, Damping Sphere, which has kind of a a whole bunch of references. It itself references the Null Moon, which is this Thran satellite that's above um, Dominaria. 
but its flavor text says, A throne relic, it has spent 10,000 years doing absolutely nothing. Which is fun. Like, it's absurd flavor text anyway, so if you don't get any of the references, that's funny. The fact that it, the card itself is kind of a reference to the Null Moon, and the Null Moon, after the destruction of the Thran, just sits around literally doing nothing until the invasion. Um, that's also funny. It's also funny because it's a direct reference to the flavor text of an old card, Null Rod. I, for, I forget who says which line, but it's Gerard and Hannah talking. Yes. And one of them goes... Um, it doesn't do anything. And the other one goes, no, it does nothing. We <laughs> kind of have this triplicate reference, this triplicate humor in this flavor text, which I thought was really fun. Um, Ariel Knight of Windgrace, notable because the Windgrace acolytes, as they're referenced to in Gathering Forces, are still around on the plane. Um, this is assumed to be part of Windgrace's forces, and Ariel is the new character in that um, lineup. We also have a very, very Black Panther beneath her as her mount. and yep. um, For those who don't know, Lord Windgrace, the Planeswalker, this is all named after, was a Black Panther cat person. Yeah, and you can see him in the mending art from earlier. Yep. Yes. Gaia's protector. Wonky story thing that happened during Invasion. Some, after being defeated, some Frexines were reclaimed by nature energy of Dominaria and turned into wood and became warriors for the Coalition. Um, they were called Frexine Woodmen. This card depicts one of them, but the figure on it, on it, you can see on an old card, Slay, which destroys a green creature. So they, they've, in order to tell the story of the Frexine turned elemental warrior, uh, they've taken the card that kills green things and turned it into a, a green creature that kills things. Yeah. Uh, which is neat. Neat way to blend mechanics and storytelling. We have Spore Crown Thalid, which was not previewed in English, so I don't have much to say about the flavor text yet, probably <laughs> next week, because timey-wimey things between recording and when things get published. But it's a quote from Sarpedian Empires Volume 3. So Fallen Empires had a bunch of flavor text attributed to Sarpedian Empires, which was a six-volume tome that talked all about the fall of the empires on the continent. And then there's a seventh volume that appeared as a card in Time Spiral. But this is the first time we see new flavor text attributed to those tomes, which is awesome. I'm a huge fan of it. People, you know I love Sarpedia, and this is just beautiful for me. Also in great, awesome historical flavor text is Fire Elemental, which is getting reprinted with more snarky Jaya Ballard <laughs> flavor text. Which, for some reason, when we realized that she was going to be in this set... I didn't realize that this meant the potential return of Jaya flavor text. For some reason, that didn't click on me, which makes me feel really stupid. But it's back. Um, so a whole new generation of people gets to enjoy the crazy stuff that Jaya says. She's so funny. Um, I hope there's more in this set. And then there's Helm of the Host, which is going to be the bane of Commander players everywhere. But that uh, flavor text references both Flowstone and Vesuva which is a really fascinating flavor juxtaposition given that this is an artifact uh, that makes clones of things. So uh, Vesuva is an isle on Dominaria. We don't actually know where, but it's an it, it's a whole island filled with shapeshifters. The people who live there are a race of shapeshifters. They're also not very nice. They will gladly turn into you, kill you, and steal your life. And then when they've stolen all your riches, um, they'll go do it to someone else. 
And then flowstone is a substance that made up the majority of the artificial plane of wrath. It's real malleable and kind of slides around and metaphysically it can slide between planes, which is what allowed wrath to overlay directly onto Dominaria instead of having the Frexians having to open portals. So um, it takes this very malleable substance and this civilization of shapeshifters and lets you make copies of your creatures, which is a really cool flavor juxtaposition. The Suva is one of those very interesting story elements where it's powerful outside of the game. Um, Vesuva does clone lands, and um, we've seen things like Vesuva and Doppelganger and Shapeshifter before, but it's never appeared in a story. Most of our insights into it are through flavor text or um, story articles, like the Plains of Plane Chase. Yeah, the, I was going to say, the Plains of Plane Chase, I think, is the only place where we really have a block of text about it. Yeah, it's interesting, but we'll see if it ever ends up. Okay, there was also a story. So this is this is episode yeah. five? Yes, episode five of Return to Dominaria. So let's dive in. To kick it off, we get confirmation, reconfirmation, re-reconfirmation. It's difficult yeah. path of um, canonicity that led us to figuring out that Venser gave his spark to Karn. In very short terms, in Scars of Mirrodin, there was a lot of confusion over what happened at the end of the novel we find out that on a couple of different occasions that and from a couple of different sources that Venser has sacrificed his life to restore Karn what we don't know is whether it was him giving up a planeswalker spark to Karn him giving up his heart to Karn and along with that his immunity or some other mixed combination of those two and obviously we don't really like get into the biology of where the spark is located it's more of just like a noble sacrifice to restore his friend and that was what was needed for that story we don't really know the full extent of what happened there and it was complicated by quest for karn is not a good novel and this was one of the reasons why yeah it was complicated by um, alleged word of god comments that were posted on the mothership forums back in the day which are now lost pretty um, definitively or very, very difficult to dive into through the web archive. So yeah, we we at least know that Venser gave his spark to Karn. We can confirm that spark Karn's spark from either Glacian or Urza, or potentially both, was extinguished during the sealing of the Talarian Rift. Yeah. And we also get some of this through Karn's little chest plate, chest plate with the branded um, signature of Urza, and now it is glowing blue, whereas before it really wasn't glowing. But yeah, it's glowing blue like Fencer. Yeah, uh, this was revealed. The, the our story picks up on the Weatherlight, and Joira is talking to a Johnny who just showed up. A Johnny was friends with Elspeth. She sent him a letter about the end of. Of when about when she left New Frexia, so so Johnny kind of knows what happens in the Frexian War, which means he knows who Karn is and knows who Koth is. Knows obviously knows Elspeth because they're friends and they met up later on Theros. And so this is the part of the story where the gang's getting back together, and the Wellerlight goes and meets Gideon and Liliana, who have made their way to Benalia City. And this is where things start <laughs> to get salty between everyone. 
Well, specifically, as soon as Liliana and Gideon are approaching Benalia City, they um, try to enter and are denied by an angel. And eventually the angel who was watching over Caligo has to vouch for them. and Because they don't want a necromancer like Liliana yeah. into their good, goody two-shoes town. Which is rightful for the Reasonable. order of Sarah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, then they end up meeting on the Weatherlight and... Um, Johnny kind of gets into a light tussle with Gideon and Liliana over how the plan went. It's the nobody listens to a Johnny moment. Uh, like <laughs> Ugin got to have one of these moments at the end of Battle for Zendikar uh, when he he told he tells Jace not to kill the Eldrazi. What do they do? They kill the Eldrazi. Ugin comes and scolds them. So at the end of Ether Revolt, um, Johnny says, "Let's meet up on Dominaria. Don't go to Amonkhet yet." And of course, what do they do? They go to Amonkhet and they get their asses kicked by Bolas. So this is. Um, a Johnny finally meeting up with only two of the Gatewatch members, yeah, because uh, he doesn't know where the hell the other three have gone, and he's just like, "What the heck, guys? Yeah, y'all did exactly the opposite of what I said. Why are you dumb?" Just when he thought they had a suitable crew of six or more to go and attack, right? Go in their raid party. They have lost three of them temporarily. Two of them. But yes. Yeah, well, they don't know that now. So, like, Gideon mentions that hopefully they can find Chandra and bring her back. Uh, Nissa's left, and they have no, no, they don't even know if Jace is still alive at this point. Yes. Um, and Johnny just kind of, I imagine him face palming a little bit. Um, and then he <laughs> planes walks away saying, like, I'm going to go find more help because clearly I made an oath with a bunch of morons. Yeah, now he's got to go dive into that pesky underworld. And rescue his friend. That would be neat. It, it would be neat, but but I don't think that's gonna happen. Yeah, exactly. He's. I don't think Johnny is especially interested in interacting with much on Theros. Liliana is still not comfortable with being opened with strangers. Gideon reveals this kind of in a moment when he is discussing the Josu matters, and Liliana gives a very very cold response. Yeah, she. So it's interesting to me. Uh, because she was very open with Gideon, and we praised her for that in earlier stories. But now she's kind of reverted. So, so it's interesting to me that she she now trusts Gideon enough to talk about those kinds of things, her and her personal life with him. But she's still that very same guarded person. Yeah. Um, with all these other people, it, it's interesting for her character because it's she's going to create the same problems with all these other people that she had before that she avoided with Gideon and she still wasn't quite hasn't figured out that if you just let if you just trust people to understand your problems and help you and let them help you and trust them to help you and then in turn they can trust you to help them like everything will go so much better for her yeah um so i mean Liliana's still a very much black aligned character who is not interested in the kind of more traditionally uh, white or green trusting that we see like Gideon and Ajani have. Yeah. And to his um, credit, Ajani, or Gideon does save face for Liliana yeah. in regards well, to Ajani. Nice he doesn't mention that um, Liliana's brother was the lich they had to defeat on Caligo. Yep. But yes. Well, and... And I, I think that's important for Gideon too, because he's he's gotten hot headed more than once, 
over things. And they do mention here that, that he he's pretty calm throughout this whole argument and interaction, which is a lot of maturity on his part. And we alluded to him, his growing leadership skills, which I think this is kind of a signal of. But now that everybody has agreed to defeat Belzenlock, we find out through Raph that the Tolarian Academies have been having a little bit of issue um, with Cabal agents in their ranks for quite a while. And so yeah. off to Teleria we go and <laughs> end up on Talaria West with some uncomfortable reunions. Yeah, so they need to... They've So Joyra's mentions that she's been watching the stronghold in Urborg and Belsenlock keeps shifting the defenses, which we mentioned earlier. So they they need to figure out a plan. A timely one. Yeah, so they they want to interrogate um, a Cabal spy to try and get information from them. Um, so to Talaria West they go, which, you know, what do you know, is very conveniently right off the coast of Arona. Yeah. And they have a ship that can fly really fast. Extremely. And um, Joda and Joyra are revealed to have an uncomfortable ex reunion. I'm I'm so sad Jay is not here for this episode because yeah. he is the biggest champion of of uh, Joyra X Joda. That that that's his ODP right there. That that's <laughs> that's his dream ship. But it is it is confirmed in a past capacity, which is what a lot of people were looking for. Any kind of confirmation of this. Um, yep. They seem to be a very complimentary fit when they were featured in um, the Time Spiral Block novels. But yeah, now they know each other well and are willing to <laughs> apparently work together if it means defeating they, they the They seem like a good fit when they just met, but now they know each other well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now they know each other well enough to be a little bit disgruntled with each other. They also meet uh, Naban, the yes. Dean of Iteration. So that, that places him, at least, in one of the academies. Yes. Joda and Naban reveal to them that, as chance would have it, students were actually murdered that day by a cabal what agent. What a coincidence. Exactly. How very, very Nine convenient. of them. Yes. Um, and they end up in the academy's laboratory, and along with the nine dead bodies, they deduce that one of the people, one of the students or faculty members who had carried the bodies down in the heat of the moment when they were trying to make sure that they were recoverable was very, very likely a cabal agent trying to gain access to the laboratory's resources. And turns out they were correct. Yeah, we don't we don't find out what the ancient artifact is that they were trying to steal. Yes. Which I thought was a little disappointing because there's a little bit of build up to that. But there's lots of those ancient artifact type thingies on Dominaria, so I guess whatever. It could be anything historic. Dot dot dot. But like seriously, that's it could the be, name of the mechanic. It could be literally anything this student could be looking, or this cabal agent could be looking for. Yeah, and it's not surprising that someone like Jodo, who's been around for thousands of years, would have. Yes, I do not believe we have the student's name, do we? Which student? Um, the student who is revealed to be Tom. Yes, um, is revealed to be the, oh, she is revealed to be the Cabal agent, and um, after a little bit of evasion, ends up in confrontation with the Gatewatch members and Joda and Joyra and the Weatherlight crew underneath the um, laboratory, and yes, gets interrogated for information. 
what they do find is that there is an artifact in the possession of Belzenlock known as the Black Blade, which we discussed earlier. Uh, before we talk about the Black Blade, I do want to mention Joda doesn't trust Gideon or Liliana. Yes. During this whole time, he mentions to Joda, it's like, yo, are you, are you sure this is like, okay, that, you know, these planeswalkers aren't <laughs> trying to take advantage of you, which is 100, like, Joda is a character who has always dumped on planeswalkers for being terrible people, and he's correct, and I'm really glad that that part of his personality has been maintained in this iteration of the character. Yes. E- even though planeswalkers aren't gods anymore, like, he he still doesn't like them. I'm sure he is very keenly aware of that, and doesn't give a crap either way <laughs> that's the truth of it still um, terrible people there are very very few planes people in general throughout the multiverse who are aware of planeswalker's existence and probably even fewer that know like the full extent of that existence and joda is just one that's long lived enough to know when they're up to their old tricks we finish off the story with them figuring out that they do want to break into the stronghold and they do want to acquire the soul drinker black blade reforged to attempt to kill bells and lock um preferably not using the veil again it seems it, that was a big point when killing josu is that Liliana said if she uses the veil to kill josu she's going to be really worn out and not able to use the veil to kill bells and lock yes um and as we saw on settle the score she's not wearing the veil when she kills bells and lock so i'm curious how that whole fight actually goes down. Yes. But the plan is to use the Black Blade, a, a weapon so powerful it could kill other dragons, to slay Belzenlock. And that seems like a sound plan. Uh, not for Gideon, but for everybody right? else. Gideon is the most vocal um, dissent within the group, saying that they shouldn't. Unsurprisingly, the the noble paladin of the, the RPG party is the one who doesn't want to use the blade that was tempered in the blood of slaves and drinks people's souls which is funny because the card itself mentions that Gideon is going to u- wield it and try and use it against bolus later so yes it will be interesting to see how that develops yeah i really want to see how, how what changes Gideon's mind um maybe it has something to do with our preview card where liliana goes off with bolus who knows who knows indeed um but to invade the stronghold efficiently they would need something or someone to maybe temporarily stop the time of the Cabal forces so that they were able to get past any obstructions they would have in trying to acquire the Black Blade and slay Bells Unlock. Are there any time mages on Dominaria with that kind of power? Well, Joyra has suspend on her original card, so she's a time well, mage, Well, that is right? true. It might just be Joyra. No, it's not Joyra. <laughs> it's... Um, <laughs> that card is awful like i said time spirals sucked for forthoses yeah um but yeah so this is this is the setup of the quest to go find teferi and break him out of his sour mood and make him be a hero again which is to me going to be one of the most interesting character moments in the in this whole set and now it's set up and i know you and jay will be disappointed when he actually does have to eat the crystal but he will eat the crystal he is going to eat, like, <laughs> like, like, how, how else how, is he going to get it inside else? of him? Like, he, he's, know. it's just, it's like a piece of rock candy. You just chomp down, maybe you chip a tooth, you just deal with it, because you're going to be a planeswalker again. It's a small price to pay. 
I mean, that was some of the earlier speculation with the Immortal Sun, too, where people were like, I don't care about the ability to trap planeswalkers. Bolas obviously wants it because somehow it would have survived the mending unchanged, and he could just, you know, take the spark that's inside of it. And I was like, how exactly is he going to do that one? Is he just going to, like, eat it? <laughs> like, I think that's the obvious solution for most of these things. Yeah. Um, putting <laughs> things in the mouth is not always a solution it seems <laughs> but yeah it does if you're yargle glutton of urborg oh yes i forgot <laughs> do we want to highlight yargle real quick <laughs> uh yeah he's just a derpy little vanilla legendary creature at uncommon because that's a theme for the set but <laughs> it's just a five mana nine three which is massive power yes um People are going to lose games to that card, which I think is going to be really funny. But like the because it's a vanilla, it just has all this flavor text, and it just tells this hilarious story of Elzenlock turning um, this uh, Cabal cleric into a little maggot, which then gets eaten by a frog, and then like the cleric's evil spirit consumes and possesses the whole thing, and now it's this like ghost frog monster that wanders around her bork and eats stuff. Yeah, it does remind me that in the access magic they were aiming for or it was revealed that they were aiming for a kind of black redesign as far as the smaller race goes and what they ended up with were the spirits that were inhabiting urborg and kind of merchants in that regard i i want to know that one piece they that one merchant piece they showed with that that big brown scrawny armed yes. spirit and the, the other one like wringing his hands in his little shop yeah and they described them as miyazaki-ish and it was, it's very fitting for this kind of illustration. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it just feels so cool. Mark Winters did an awesome job with the art direction for the set and made, you know, in a set where Bells and Luck, I guess, I guess these are final thoughts because that was the end of the story yes. is go find a fairy. So, so final thoughts, uh, Mark Winters is killing it and he's, I, I think Magic in general has been making a comfort, conscious effort to make the the black aligned races a lot more kind of i don't even know what the word i would use just just less evil yeah less decidedly evil in this case more mischievous yeah we know we know black has has like zombies and vampires and stuff the etherborn were very much an effort to make a black aligned race that is creative and inspired and positive um, despite the fact that some of them are still crime lords, uh, like even even Gonti turned out to be really helpful. Yes. Um, and has really good taste in parties. So it's so like even even like the the quote unquote uh, bad Etherborn are are still enjoyable characters and still really relatable. Um, I feel like a lot of these Urborg spirit things are make Black really playful in yes. that kind of creepy Miyazaki way. And a lot of times. That it doesn't end up at that way on cards. Right. So you got any final thoughts? My final thoughts are that Gideon is still extremely, extremely weak to ranged attacks. Even if he ends up taking up this Black Blade. I posted this on Twitter, but <laughs> in any kind of boss battle, unless he's real up front and close like Dakin was with Piru, he's probably not going to get a strike on, on any kind of target, um, any kind of Nicol Bolas size target specifically. Yeah, we'll have to see, because we've seen the Gatewatch do a lot of the teamwork stuff to overcome foes, and they didn't do that with Bolas, and 
got their butts whooped. Uh, so uh, it, it'll be interesting to see, I think, who, who Johnny finds. We know from Oath of Teferi that Teferi's going to join the Gatewatch, so we'll see what he brings to the group. Uh, we'll see how Jace's plan to give Raska her memories back and recruit Niv-Mizzet and, and potentially alert the other guilds against Bolas works. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it all go down. Like, Part of it is me just wanting this Bolas plot arc to be done. <laughs> yeah. Part of it is uh, they do have a lot of wheels in motion from a whole bunch of planes. Um, so I think this story has been playing really well with the fact that magic takes place in a multiverse. Exactly. So and and we haven't really had that multiversal arc yet. This is like I I, I guess I guess the Frexian invasion got to do it between Dominaria and these two Frexian planes, uh, Frexia and Wrath. But like, but now it's held over our head with the Eternals and the portals. So this arc has crossed uh, Ixalan and Kaladesh and Amonkhet and now Dominaria and uh, is going to play in Ravnica and it, it, it it's cool to see the story the narrative team and the and the story itself leveraging what makes magic magic which is the multiverse and the variety of planes and the different types of people and technology and magics that exist yeah and speaking of which at the I believe it's supposed to be after Dominaria previews we will be getting some kind of announcement day for what lays past Dominaria so we can look forward to finding out if our Ravnica speculation is true or not. Um, it seems very likely according to the story, but yes. We know the story is going to hit Ravnica. We don't exactly know when. We do suspect this fall. We'll see yeah. when that gets announced and see what the actual announcements for Core 2019 are, which yes. we speculate is the Bolas plan set. So lots to look forward to, but uh, that's it for today. Yeah, this has been the Vorthos cast. Yeah, we just want to thank everybody for listening, and uh, goodbye. Goodbye.